name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast, episode 15. And time flies when you're having fun, can't believe, episode 15 already. Alright, anyway, in this week's episode... We're going to cover the spiker spine and spiker spine dysfunction as I kind of got them mixed up when we did headaches in the last episode instead of the spiker spine. So this episode we're doing cervical spine. Okay, a little back front, but thanks for bearing with me. As always, we're going to structure it in terms of going through anatomy, a little bit of physiology. If there is any physiology that we need to go through, pretty sure there is like Golgi tendons, muscle spindles, things like that. So then this way we can, again, compare normal to abnormal. Hopefully after we've gone through cervical spine and cervical spine dysfunction, some of the headaches will make a lot more sense and they'll be clearer. And then it's provided us with a base and a foundation that we can then build on in the next episode when we start looking at dizziness, uh, vertigo, and going through that kind of aspect of the concussion. And off the top of my head, I was thinking that when I do that, what I might actually do is I might do a rundown of the cranial nerves so we know what's affected in terms of the cranial nerves as well and what they're responsible, what their function is. I'm yet to decide whether I do a full episode on the cranial nerves themselves and then do what concussion impacts in terms of what systems like vestibular and ocular motor, the cranial nerves there, or if I just kind of pick out the main ones that are affected. I'm yet to decide. I'm still tossing that up. All right. Anyway, enough of rambling on with that. Let's get into cleaned up for this week. Okay, and this week in cleaned up happened last week anyway, but I'm specifically going to talk about Harry Maguire and the English Premier League for Manchester United. And I'm not talking about his football inabilities here or jumping on with everybody and what they're saying. What my gripe here is, or confusion I should say, not gripe, is he didn't even last about 60 seconds into the match. And I posted on the socials, He, when he's gone for a header, he's clipped the opponent's shoulder, he's gone down, Put he put the ball out of play, he sat down, looked in a fair bit of distress. Doctors come over, referee stopped play, they assessed him, said he's right to carry on. Now, if it's enough for him to put the ball out, stop, uh, stop play, and do an assessment there on the pitch, they really need to take him off the pitch, go pitch side, but for a mandatory 10 to 15 minutes to let the adrenaline stop, to let everything slow down, to let him actually kind of get his composure back and then any signs and symptoms are going to manifest and they're going to show because we always hear that they had delayed concussion. It's not the concussion's delayed, it's just the adrenaline is masking the concussion signs and symptoms. That's why I believe and I feel that any assessment to do with the head should be a mandatory 15 minutes. Now, my point here is he got cleared to play and go back on and they restarted play. I think it was about the 60th minute. The referee was actually concerned and stopped play and called the doctors on to the pitch. Now, again, they did an assessment, they cleared him, he carried on, 
and he played out the game. My concern here is if a referee can actually see the signs, symptoms, point out that a player isn't okay, get the medical staff on the field, what's he still doing on the field? I'm very perplexed. You've got Ange Postacoglu in the first round burning a sub, actually substituting a player, looking after his well-being and his health, and then yet we start getting 10, 11, 12 games into the season, and now the polar opposite's happening. We've got to make some continuity. We've got to get some consistency in this. And again, the athlete needs to be protected from themselves. I get that. But at the same time, the doctors or medical staff or, and should I say, look, they could be under pressure. I don't know what's going through their head. I don't know who's in their ear, everything like that. I mean, there needs to be an overriding system where it's just like, You've gone undergone a head assessment. You copped a shoulder to the chin for a lack of better anatomical knowledge and term there. You should be coming off, not clear him and put him back on. I originally thought that we'd made progression and we made inroads into this. Unfortunately, we clearly haven't. And the only way we're going to able to combat that is not through criticizing and telling people what they did wrong, why they did it wrong and how they did it wrong is through better education, better tools, better implementations and actually pretty much giving them a carrot for bringing somebody off and congratulating them because we're going to get down the track, then the CTE conversation comes up. Let's just hypothetically say that touch wood, it doesn't happen 20, 30 years time. Harry Maguire has CTE. He blames the doctors from this match. The doctors say, no, you're fine. You wanted to carry on playing. Then he goes, but I didn't know any different. I'm a footballer. That's what I'm born and bred to do. And this is where that tussle happens. So we need to clear this up. In saying that, that's the end of Cleaned Up for this episode. Let's get back into it. Okay, so with the cervical dysfunction, we're going to talk about the cervical spine. Now, the cervical spine is part of the axial skeleton. This is basically the skull, vertebra, rib cage, pectoral girdle, which is your scapula, your clavicle, and this pretty much like connects you to the appendicular skeleton, which is your limbs, so your arms, your legs. Now, as for the vertebral column, your spine, it serves its main function in terms of permitting movement of the head, trunk, allows the exits of the spinal cord, the spinal nerves, supports weight of the head, and allows for multiple sites of muscle attachments. Now, depending on what research or what book you read, the vertebral column or the spinal column is made up of five sections. You've got the cervical spine, which has seven vertebrae, thoracic spine, which has 12 vertebrae, the lumbar spine, which has five vertebrae, excuse me, and the way you remember this is what time do you eat breakfast, lunch, and tea? Seven, twelve, and five. Then you've got the sacrum and the coccyx, which is one bone, which is all fused of three to five separate bones, and that's where I was talking about the research. Depends what you read. So if we look at the vertebral column, it's classified as an irregular bone. So what I mean by this is irregular bones come in different shapes and sizes, and there's no continuity of 
everything is the same. So other examples is you've got flat bones, short bones, long bones. They're all pretty self-explanatory. On top of this, your vertebra is classified as a gliding or a plane joint. Okay, and this is a non-axial gliding or plane joint as it allows for exactly what the name says, gliding. Now, this takes place at the zygopoxial joints or most commonly known as the facet joints. Except for C1 and C2, as this is actually a uniaxial pivot joint. And this allows for the rotation along a vertical axis. So this is a hard one to describe, really. Um, how, do I, how do I talk about this? It's almost impossible to actually do and demonstrate via audio only and not actually having pictures or whiteboard or PowerPoint presentations. So what I'll do is when I was going through studying, when I was at uni and I still watch their videos religiously now, there's a, um, a YouTube channel called Ninja Nerds. And these guys and girls on there are just absolute wizards when it comes to everything. Anatomy, diseases. So I'll actually jump on, find the video demonstrations of the vertebrae for there. So you've got some type of conceptualization and pictures that you can actually go off to understand what I'm talking about in audio only. And I'll actually put the link in the show notes. And I just want to say I'm not affiliated with these guys, nor do I know them. It was just really well explained and I found them super, super helpful. So back to it anyway. In terms of the vertebrae, they all have general characteristics and share same anatomical landmarks. This includes things as the body of the vertebra, the spinous process, superior and inferior, articulating facets. So on the video, I'll make it a lot more clearer and you'll be able to understand. It's very hard to actually describe in that way. However, the big key point here is that there is some key differences between the vertebra in the cervical spine, thoracic spine, and lumbar spine. So if at first we look at the articulating facet of the superior process of the vertebra below and the articulating facet of the inferior articulating process of the vertebra above, and there's a little bit of an example of what I mean. So if we think of like um, two blocks stacked on one another, okay, the top block has like a little projection point down, the bottom block has a little projection point up, and these connect. Horrible description. Off the top of my head, it's the best I can come up with. And that's what I'm talking about there, okay? And these are all different in regards to the cervical spine, thoracic spine, and the lumbar spine. So if we look at the cervical region, these are angulated on about a 45-degree angle, and it allows for frontal plane movements such as flexion, extension, lateral flexion, and rotation when you get to C1, C2. Then there's the thoracic spine. These are angulated on a 60-degree angle, and again, it allows for frontal plane movement, lateral flexion and rotation. However, it does not allow for flexion and extension because of that extra increase of the 15 degrees in the angle. Then we go even further to the lumbar spine or lumbar region, and these are at 90 degrees. And they allow for movement in the sagittal plane, so it only allows for flexion and extension. It doesn't allow for rotation. You can do some little bit of lateral flexion, but there's not much. So Point being is the zygopox field joints or the facet joints, they allow for the movement and the range of motion that we have. Now, as I said, if you think about C1, C2 vertebrae, which is 
the atlas and the, the dens, these rotate on each other and allowing for that rotation. Again, it's criminally oversimplified, but it's without having the picture, I'm sorry, it's kind of, yeah, it's going to have to do. Anyway, lastly, when we're talking about the cervical spine, these all have vertebral foramen, which are these like little holes created in the bone that project off the sides. And this is, allows for the vertebral artery to run through. And these are only actually found in the cervical spine. They're not in the thoracic or the lumbar spine. Brief confusion anatomy of the vertebrae. Again, my sincere apologies. Of all the landmarks, then we move forward. We have these attachment sites of the muscles. They used to be labeled origins and insertions and were defined by what joint was moving and what joint was staying still when the muscle contracted. So the origin never moved, the insertion moved. So if you think of, uh, let's just say, the quadriceps, then in the quadriceps, uh, made up of four muscles, quad being four, we'll go the rectus morris, okay, for an example. So we had the origin being the anterior inferior iliac spine on the, the pelvis there, and the actual muscle, then the insertion connects into the patella tendon down there, of where around the knee and the patella, and that's how they used to do it. But now they just go attachment points. I think the main reason that off the top of my head they did this was because when you move in certain planes in different motions, sometimes the joint that's actually moving changes. So look at the piriformis. It has two different actions when you're standing and you're walking compared to when you're at the bottom of the squat. It changes the origin and insertion because you're actually then changing the mechanics of the pelvis. So... There's an example anyway, I digress, I've gone way off topic. So in terms of what we need to remember on a gross level when it comes to the cervical spine and what's impacted as a result of concussion and not concussion directly, I mean by like the whiplash associated disorder or the actual blow that we receive, whether it be to the head or the body, which we'll talk about later on, or other disorders, is we've got to remember the SCM, which is your sternocleidomastoid, Splenius capitis, upper traps, uh, longus coli, semispinalis, there's temporalis, frontalis, occipitalis, and arguably the most important group that you have to remember is your suboccipital muscles. Now, these are made up of the rectus capitis posterior major and minor, and the oblique capitis superior and inferior, which again we'll touch on later. You include many ligaments that attach around the vertebra here of all the articulations that we've gone through, add the actual facet joint itself, and we've got this high network of vasculature, nerve complex, neural pathways for vision, balance, and it's basically a log jam in this area. Okay, so given the crash course of eight weeks of anatomy in five minutes, and I feel horrible that I can't explain in a better way without pictures and diagrams, and I do apologize. Anyway, if we get back to how is this related to concussion? Well, the neck is the most overlooked piece of concussion and rehab besides the psychological component in terms of general treatment. And I say this is people try doing like vestibular rehab, ocular motor rehab, then seeing psychologists, then before you know it, they're then 12 weeks in, then they try the neck for another two or three sessions. They know it's not working. The person's wasting time, money, valuable resources. Now the actual psychological components really kicked in. 
my personal experience and opinion here, and again, it's just that, is that neck rehab must be started around the three-week mark, okay? This is after the vestibular and visual components been ruled in or ruled out in the previous session, which you usually do around week two. And I say week three as it gives time for information, time to subside, plus it also gives you time, as I just said, to assess the vestibular and the visual component beforehand. Now, you don't want to isolate each treatment modality, okay, because they're going to overlap and they're going to interlink, but you want enough of a gap that you don't want to create a scattergut approach where you're none the wiser of actually what treatment worked, what system was most effective. This way, it gives you more of a clearer indication of actually your process of treatment, what worked, why it worked, and how it worked. Furthermore, I know this sounds like a broken record and we've talked about it many times regarding concussion. Whiplash component of concussion and the G-force required is pretty straightforward. It's a non-negotiable for a practitioner. That four G-forces is enough to create a whiplash. Concussion occurs on average around that 70 Gs. Always going to have a whiplash component. So vocal dysfunction when we're suspecting it's as a result of someone being concussed, we're always going to treat for that whiplash-associated injury as we know that a concussion and WAD present with both identical signs and symptoms. These include headaches, cognitive disturbances, fatigue, the psychological distress, memory, concentration impairment, visual disturbance, dizziness, balance problems. And look, if you read the research, to top it off, it's around that 60 to 70% mark of all MTBI or mild traumatic brain injury patients also report neck pain. If I was to separate these two, I can't. It becomes too difficult. Further in this, when you got Beckman and Etel in 2017 stating that an MTBI patients do not perform more poorly on cognitive tests than whiplash patients, it just supports what we've said. This is also where it gets a little bit complex as I started earlier, okay, started, stated earlier. You look at the whole cervical spine dysfunction, the whiplash component. The neck acts as like this neural pathway or neural highway or a link between our vestibular system, okay, and this has three parts all working together to help receive, distribute information regarding balance, proprioception, and neck movement. So we have these things that we call muscle spindles. These are like these little fibers, which are delicate sensory input fibers, and they connect to the central nervous system. And when an individual muscle in our body changes length by contraction, this is detected by the speed of the contraction through these muscle spindles, or the length that's actually taking place, and it allows us to maintain posture, gait, and motor control. Then to inhibit this, we've got the Golgi tendons. And these allow for the muscle to react, so they're like an antagonist and an agonist, but they work closely together, both working in tandem, with each creating this picture of proprioception, muscle contraction and relaxation. Now, when we apply more force to an increased muscle, this stretches due to load to overcome the resistance. And this is how these work. Now, let's just say we sustain an MTBI or a concussion or a whiplash injury. There is this theory that the damage to the muscle tendons, fibers, facet joints, muscle spindles, joint capsules themselves in the neck, and this all alters 
and disrupts the proprioceptive properties that we were just talking about. It can also now relate to the cervicogenic vertigo as these symptoms have been disrupted. I forgot to add or explain earlier that cervicoocular reflex and the vestibulocular reflex are elicited or they're actually like engaged by rotation and movements of the head which is initiated by the neck and the base there. So if we look at the cervicoocular reflex, a response to eye movement from the neck, whereas the vestibulocular reflex stables the eye. So if you get an injury to the neck that alters the cervical ocular reflex, this will in turn then alter the vestibulocular reflex. Now, that probably would have made a little bit more sense if I explained it earlier, so I do apologize. This then leads to having poor muscle recruitment patterns in the neck around the base of all the muscles that we talked about in the suboccipitals, the upper traps, everything along them lines, splenic capitis, and we tend to favor one side or position, and this creates an asymmetric restriction in the neck and the range of motion. Now, this can lead to dizziness, nausea, vision problems. So everything is entwined. Now, further in this, a cervicogenic headache can now arise, and we discussed this last episode. Okay, so just a quick recap. It refers to like the pain perceived by the musculoskeletal tissue of the head. So if we remember, it's unilateral. It's a pressure-type pain that radiates from the base of the neck to the anterior portion of the scalp. Then there could be a cervical facet arthropathy, so the inflammation around the facet joints causing referred pain in the neck. Now, this is more common in the lumbar spine as well, and it's a difficult one as it's like you can be, yes, it is caused by trauma and an MTBI, which again is trauma and the actual impact. However, the thing that makes this hard is that most people that have facet and we'll put disc degeneration in with this because they kind of go hand in hand. They don't even know it and it doesn't cause any pain or discomfort. Now you could go image everybody, just say in a classroom, okay, we're going to have 30 students and you're probably going to say about 80% of them are going to have some sort of degeneration, loss of disc height, some set up of this. So in terms of actually trying to label this for lack of a better term, this makes it a little bit hard. Anyway. Even though there's little clinical evidence and it's kind of on the low end of the spectrum, we tend to use a Kemp's orthopedic test for the lumbar spine or a Berlin's orthopedic test for the spinal spine. This is basically putting these two segments in extension and then rotation. And what you're trying to do is recreate that pain or their discomfort. Then you have some severe cases and the neck might include the trigeminocervical nucleus as the spinal nucleus of this trigeminal nerve descends from the upper three spinal cord segments. Now, this is important as the pain here can be interpreted in the head and the face as this is where the trigeminal nerve exits. So if we look at it, okay, so just simply if you get where your ears are, it's in the branch comes through the, the, the base of the scale, comes up and then pokes out just in front of the ear in these little foramen here and then the trigeminal nerve as it is Try is three branches. We've got V1, V2, V3. V1 being the ophthalmic, which is the eye region. V2 being the maxillary, which is basically the top of your lip. And V3 being the mandible, which is your jaw. Okay, so we also have one each side. So we've got two sets of these cranial nerves. And these come down through there, as I just discussed. If you think of the actual herpes simplex virus, the one that actually creates cold sores, that's these nerve ganglions that actually get infected. And then if you actually look at the distribution of cold sores and where they run, 
they're actually following these branches. And my whole point to that story and quickly running through the trigeminal nerve is that the pain that you're receiving in the face and the head can be from the base of the neck and the skull there. All right, to wrap this up and the take-home message, and again, I'm so sorry I couldn't discuss this episode in a clear, concise manner. I feel like it's been all over the joint, and I really do apologize for this. The spherical dysfunction in concussion are usually overlooked on the occasions based on the signs and symptoms are identical for whiplash, spherical dysfunction, and the mild traumatic brain injury. So what causes the dysfunction is what we've got to ask. Is it muscular? Is it from the facet? Is it trauma? Is it vascular? Is there an underlying disease? Is there an arthropathy such as a spondylosis? All these things can result in the dizziness and the reflexive changes in the eyes, the balance, the ocular motor system, the vestibular system due to the innovation in the neural pathways that we've talked about. So really the neck and the cervical spine when it comes to concussion is just as important as everything else that we've previously talked about. If you go see someone, just a quick clinical tip and a clinical note here. I'm not advising for, I'm not advising against, take it with a pinch of salt. But if you go see anybody for any condition, let's just say, and hypotheticals, if someone gives you a general diagnosis of the standard non-specific neck pain, it's non-specific back pain, or it's lumbar spine dysfunction, or it's cervical spine dysfunction, push harder for clarity. There's always a cause. And what I mean for this, it's not a big bad nasty in terms of there's always a cause. Is the dysfunction muscular? Is it my movement pattern, which my structure is now picking up for my lack of function, causing inflammation? So push for more information. You're well within your rights to ask this. However, on the practitioner's side, it's okay for them to say, hey, look, I'm sorry. I don't know. I'll go find out. I'll go look it up and I'll get back to you. Okay? As long as everything is generally okay. This catch-all diagnosis is not really fair on the patient and it's a bit lazy on the practitioner. Anyway, to conclude the episode again, apologies, it's all over the shop this episode. Next one will be a lot more clear and concise. I really appreciate your time and the support. And as said earlier, in the next episode, we're going to talk about vertigo, dizziness, in general, how to apply concussion. I just don't know whether to go over the cranial nerves first or incorporate it with them too so till the next episode we'll chat then and that concludes today's episode even though i'm a registered chiropractor all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only this is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician if you believe you're suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode please contact your medical practitioner i am your host dr reese granger Thank you for listening.